I'm Jorge Salazar, reporting for the Texas Advanced Computing Center, part of the University of Texas at Austin. Alex Gorfa is an assistant professor of integrative biology and pharmacology at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston Medical School. Dr. Gorfe used simulations with Tax Lone Star and Stampede supercomputers to reveal new changes happening in the cell membrane as it interacts with an enzyme linked to cancer. An overactive protein called ROS triggers a chain of cell signals that can cause out-of-control growth and ultimately cancer. ROS, R-A-S, is short for human rat sarcoma, and these proteins, which humans share with rats, were discovered in the 1960s, and they had the first gene identified with the potential to cause cancer. Scientists today have little understanding of how ROS proteins form and organize themselves on the membrane, but Alex Gorfe describes this research as one step closer to developing therapeutic targets for ROS-driven cancer tumors. Well, Dr. Gorfe, thank you for speaking with us today. No, you're welcome. Now, what are the main findings of your study published in April of 2014 in the Journal of Physical Chemistry Letters? Let me start by uh, going, going back a little to, you know, uh, papers we published a few years ago, uh, I think 2012. Uh, at the time, we were trying to look at how RAS proteins, uh, we'll come back to what, what, they, what they do, uh, this lipid modified uh, molecular switches that sit on the inner surface of the plasma membrane have been uh, characterized over the last uh, seven uh, or six years as uh, forming aggregates or nanoclusters on the membrane surface. And apparently it is these clusters, these are really transient uh, substructures on the membrane that assemble and disassemble quickly. It is this clusters that are involved in signal transmission. So this has been shown by cell biologists and particularly by our department chair uh, here, uh, John Hancock. So what we wanted to do at the time was to ask, you know, what is the physical origin uh, for the formation of these nanoclusters and uh, what's their dynamic property? Uh, what does it look like? Uh, so we started simulating them, just cutting a small portion of the protein that is responsible for binding to the membrane. Uh, and we looked at it using uh, something uh, called coarse-grained molecular dynamic simulation. And the reason we use coarse-grained uh, methods is that it would allow us to sample long time scale, time scale processes and also very large systems. So that's necessary to capture this uh, molecular assemblies, you, uh, doing it using atomically detailed models would be too expensive. So we were, we were uh, working on that and we found really interesting results. Uh, they were published in PNAS and JAX in 2012. But what we saw as an uh, you know, uh, aside, uh, something we did not expect was the lesson uh, we can we can draw from those simulations on membrane biophysics in general, you know, more broad uh, questions are, arose from that uh, those observations, and that is that these peptides tend to go to the boundary of lipid domains. So let me explain that. In uh, the membrane is heterogeneous, and it has thicker, you know, less dynamic regions called lipid draft or liquid order domains, more more precisely, uh, coexisting with more dynamic thinner domains. We call them liquid disordered domains. Uh, 
So these peptides tend to go to the boundary between them. So that, that gives them some surface properties, so some, some unique features. And then when we calculated the, uh, the line energy, the tension between the two domains, in the absence and in the presence of these peptide aggregates that, that, sit, that preferentially sit at the boundary, then we saw that uh, the line energy decreases. So which means that they either stabilize the domain boundary or help uh, its formation. It's very hard to tell uh, the, uh, which is which in this regard, but they, they do either of these two things so that domain formation in, in membranes is facilitated. So the, the, the work you have seen in this uh, uh, Journal of uh, Physical Chemistry Letters is an outgrow of that, uh, that observation. So we wanted to see uh, what would even larger aggregates do to the membrane. So the, class, the mem membrane in general is supposed to be a flat uh, plane, uh, perfectly symmetric plane. But when we have now the full leg this protein, this time we have uh, everything in all parts of the protein included uh, attached to the inner surface of the membrane, just to, to one side of the membrane. Then over time during the simulations, these proteins aggregate. And the aggregate is a large substructure that imposes some kind of curvature on the membrane. So that's really the the, the major uh, observation uh, you know before that we, we didn't have really the tools or the analysis the, the analysis techniques to ask these kinds of questions what would binding of these lipid modified proteins in our case RAS as I said it's a molecular switch would do to the membrane would they just you know sit passively and not affect it at all or would they somehow change its shape so that, that, that is the, uh, the question we asked, and the observation was clearly that they have a major effect on, uh, on the membrane. So by membrane remodeling, what we mean is uh, uh, inducing uh, changes in the shape of the membrane. Rather than completely flat bilayer, you would now get a curved bilayer due to the stress induced by this aggregate sitting asymmetrically on one side. Uh, of the membrane, and uh, this, this this model uh, uh, we have in the in the paper is uh, you know captures some of the fundamental features of the plasma membrane. Not everything; it's still uh, uh, a model, but it's, uh, it's supposed to capture the basic features of the plasma membrane. And the implication of this is that if these proteins indeed form aggregates uh, in cells then that aggregate is not only important for function, as has been shown by experimentalists, but also participates in reorganizing the lipids around those uh, aggregates. Well, Dr. Gorby, thank you for that summary. Uh, maybe you could also summarize for us what is new about this study. This particular study uh, differs from the previous one in, in two respects. One, uh, as I said, in this case, we have a much larger uh, bilayer model, and we have also the full-length protein. We have everything included. In the previous studies, we started with a simplified uh, model, you know, heptapeptide with three lipid modifications attached to it. 
So that represents the membrane interacting portion of the protein. So the current one has everything in it. Uh, so that's, that's one difference. And uh, as a consequence, the other difference is just a consequence of that. Uh, the deformation we see on the membrane is now much larger. Uh, and as far as um, uh, I can tell, both in terms of size and uh, in terms of impact, uh, the, the later paper uh, is more significant and different from the previous one. And the other thing is, you know, although this, this membrane remodeling effect has been seen for a variety of other systems, a bar domain, for example, and also uh, lysophosphatidic lipids can do similar thing, but it has not been characterized or uh, studied for lipid-modified proteins. And these are, uh, you know, the lipid-modified proteins are ubiquitous in the cell. There uh, many, many molecular switches have some kind of lipid modification and they sit on the plasma membrane. And uh, and in that way, it is, uh, it's new and also its implications are uh, more profound. And I understand that you used resources here at the Texas Advanced Computing Center to assist in your research. Um, how did the Lone Star and Stampede supercomputers at TAC help? Let me put it this way. Uh, without this, uh, these two machines, the work in this paper and the others would not have been possible. So uh, we, we get our location through uh, uh, my own projects and also in the last two years, uh, my uh, postdocs were also able to submit abstracts and get our locations. Uh, and all of these large-scale simulations have been carried out uh, in either of these two machines previously, uh, mostly on Lone Star, but now uh, most frequently on Stampede. And uh, TAC was just a key to, to, to this project. Now, just to talk a little bit about the background of this research, the uh, National Cancer Institute announced plans for a, a $10 million a year initiative to study human rat sarcoma proteins, or these ROS proteins you've, you've been speaking of. Why, in your opinion, why are ROS proteins being so actively studied right now? That's really an interesting question and uh, something that has been uh, advocating for some time. This is the story. ROS was the uh, first oncogenic protein, uh, cancer-causing protein, uh, that has to, to be identified some 40 years ago. And people have been trying to inhibit the abnormal function of RAS, which is involved in some say 25%, others 30%, but in a large proportion uh, of cancers. And in some cases, pancreatic cancer, for example, mutations on, on one of the RAS proteins is responsible for 90% or more of, of uh, pancreatic cancer cases. So that, that tells you that it's a very, very important anti-cancer drug target. So people have been studying these proteins for, for, for decades. Uh, we actually wrote a couple of reviews uh, uh, on this and how simulations helped. But let me come back to why interest now. So that the thing is, uh, in the 90s, late 90s, there was a lot of excitement on on a, a class of compounds that inhibit one of the enzymes that puts lipid on RAS proteins. And that's, you know, lipidation is important for membrane binding of the protein. 
And the thought was, you know, if, if we inhibit one of these in, enzymes that, that actually puts lipids on RAS, we might uh, dislodge it from the membrane surface, or we might not, you know, we might be able to uh, prevent it from membrane binding and in so doing prevent uh, its function. But those uh, compounds tend, tend, to, uh, tend to be useless because apparently RAS, when you inhibit one enzyme that puts one kind of lipid on it, it finds, um, it uses other enzymes to put similar other lipids on it and it goes to the membrane and does its work. So those failed. Uh, the, <coughs> the other thing is if, if you want to, to try to find small molecule inhibitors that directly bind the enzyme, RAS is an enzyme, a slow acting enzyme, but an enzyme nonetheless, those, um, the, the active site, the traditional uh, target for ligand design, is conserved in, in, in many, many, many similar other essential proteins, G proteins. So selectivity would be an issue. The other problem is it's a GTP binding protein, uh, guanine um, uh, triphosphatase, and the binding affinity for, for GTP is very high. So if you find, if you try to develop a competitive inhibitor, you would not be able to outcompete GTP binding in sense. So for this and other reasons, it was considered undruggable. It would, you know, people thought, okay, we cannot really drug this, this enzyme directly. So it, it, it faded away. Now, what has changed over the last uh, four or five years, in my view, is the following. One, we learned quite a bit about the importance of dynamics in uh, drug discovery in general and, all, and uh, for these kinds of proteins, the RAS proteins in particular. So dynamics came into the picture. The other is we were advocating, my lab and a few others were advocating that RAS can, is probably an allosteric enzyme. What that means is that if you bind small molecules somewhere further away from the uh, part of the protein that's actually involved in interaction with other proteins, uh, that's, that's what you want to prevent, uh, then those the binding somewhere else would, would impact uh, its interaction with other proteins using the other parts, uh, the other surface of the protein. So trying to, uh, to, to convince ourselves that RAS is an allosteric enzyme was the first step. So now we are on solid foundation, foundation on that regard. So now two things, dynamics allosteric came into play. The third is that, you know, this large scale genomic studies uh, you know, trying to find uh, other anti-cancer, uh, uh, other targets for cancer therapy, concluded that, you know, unless we do something about one of these RAS isoforms called KERAS, our chances of curing, uh, you know, a number of cancers uh, is not that high. So that shifted focus back to RAS as a drug target. All these things came together, you know, technological, conceptual developments plus uh, the, the genomic studies um, to, to refocus our attention uh, back to us. And now, because of this, over the last two years, um, I think about five or six papers, high-profile papers have been published showing that, yes, in fact, RAS is allosteric and also we can find small molecules that bind elsewhere, you know, at an allosteric site. And 
and the abrogate uh, some of the functions of RAS proteins. So we are we part we have a paper in that uh, area, and we were uh, part of this this development. And now uh, NCI, uh, as you mentioned, obviously recognized all of these developments and tried to, you know, go back to us and attack it in a more concerted, coordinated manner. And this uh, this ten million dollar you mentioned is uh, is dedicated towards uh, bringing. Uh, expertise, reagents, material uh, together and coordinate the effort uh, towards RAS inhibition. For those of us listening who aren't familiar with some of the processes going on here at the cell membrane, um, maybe you could tell us, describe this for us. I've heard that the, there's cell signaling involved and it's described as a, a row of falling dominoes where one protein interaction triggers a new set of proteins and uh, so on. Uh, what are some of the these important dominoes in the RAS interactions you studied? A number of them, actually. Imagine that these RAS proteins sitting on the inner surface uh, of the plasma membrane. And the first uh, trigger for them to participate in signal transmission is binding uh, of, of a signal outside of the cell. Because... Uh, hormonal, for example, and that would lead to one of the dominoes uh, falling, or, or, or in our case, you know, changing shape. And those, those are uh, transmembrane receptors, and that will lead to uh, shape change or conformational change uh, in those receptors, and that will lead to binding to something we call the exchange factors, guanine nucleotide exchange factors. Uh, and those proteins then bind to, to RAS and, uh, and allow it to get rid of GDP, uh, that is uh, the, the molecule that is uh, it's bound with at the resting state. Um, and once GDP is uh, expelled, RAS picks up GTP, that's more abundant uh, in the cell. And once it's GTP bound, it changes shape relative to the, the one in the GDP state. And that would allow it to interact with not just one, but a variety uh, of other uh, kinases. We call them effectors in general. There are many of them. And uh, there is some level of uh, selectivity among grass proteins, but most uh, transmit signal through multiple uh, effector molecules. Now that, 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 that initiates a cascade of protein-protein interactions that would eventually lead to uh, transmission of the information to the nucleus. And the nucleus then, um, you know, whatever the instruction might be, would uh, start cell proliferation, differentiation, or apoptosis, depending on, again, the, the signal. So this, these are the... Uh, Dominos that you, uh, I guess, you are referring to, and uh, it is the organization of of, of, the, of these proteins or these these dominos that uh, uh, we try to understand. In our case, we focus mostly on uh, the membrane binding, and recently in uh, interactions of RAS with its exchange factor on one side and uh, effector molecules on the other side. Uh, and the other domino I should mention is this nanoclustering uh, I mentioned earlier that RAS proteins themselves on the membrane uh, can organize uh, into uh, into clusters, and that is as important 
as all the other uh, interaction partners I mentioned. And would you walk us through maybe the um, the computer simulation snapshots? Uh, uh, we we have a, we start with one picture of it looks like a evenly distributed um, yellows in this. It looks like all the colors are basically kind of evenly distributed in some way, and then they they seem to all come together. Um, explain what's happening here with this diagram. All right, so we start with three different types of lipid species: the red, green and white. You, you might not see the white uh, very well, but the, the red is one type of lipid. Uh, in our case, it's DPPC uh, lipid. It's, it is, it's tails, lipids have tails, you know, two tails, and both are fully saturated. Okay. The other is uh, what we call the LIPC lipid. Uh, these are similar or the same with the DPPC lipids at the head group, but they are, their tail region is uh, unsaturated, okay, polyacid, so they have double bonds. So, so j just to give you an idea uh, why this is important, it is due to these saturation levels at the tails that lipids face separate, segregate. So there is nothing new about that, that's a textbook uh, chemistry. So when you add cholesterol, you need cholesterol for these uh, two lipids to, to segregate, to separate from one another. So th those are the, the three lipids we have. Uh, the other, the yellow, are proteins, these uh, HRAS proteins. So they were, uh, were, as you said, evenly distributed initially, but we are having now a top view of the membrane, okay? So, so we don't show waters, ions, and everything, but those are included in the simulation. We, we stripped it off. For, for clarity. So we started with that kind of distribution. These are evenly distributed and allow uh, the system to evolve during molecular dynamic simulations. Uh, as you might know, this uses Newton's uh, equations of motion to, to propagate uh, uh, systems over time. And as time goes on, the green uh, and red lipids segregate from each other. They face separate. Uh, Nothing new. People have shown that before, and and it's known. And uh, I'm moving to Figure B now. Uh, the white, the cholesterol, as, as expected, we expected this would uh, have moved along with the DPPC lipids, the red lipids. So what would this lead to is two phases: the green and uh, the reddish regions, which are, although it's not clear in this figure, which are different in thickness, the red part is thicker by about one nanometer, uh, and also there are other uh, physical properties that are different, lipid diffusion, for example. So what happened along with that was uh, yellow, the protein, uh, underwent uh, an assembly process. They aggregated, uh, as you can see, into practically one large aggregate. Uh, and also, as you, you may infer from the figure, they, you know, on average, they tend to go to the boundary between the red and uh, green uh, domains. So we call the green liquid disordered domain and the red liquid ordered domain. So the proteins go roughly in between these two domains and also uh, uh, assemble, self-assemble. Now, I should mention one uh, caveat here. The, it's, it's, this the assembly is a bit rigid because of the 
uh, approximations we have to use for uh, coarse grain simulation. So if we had atomically detailed simulation, which we intend to do in the future, they might be more dynamic and uh, slightly smaller. But that is uh, the, the key message of, of this figure, that we can uh, get spontaneous phase separation of lipids accompanied by self-aggregation of lipid-modified proteins that are bound on one side of the membrane. Another concept that was uh, dealt with in your paper was membrane remodeling, and you mentioned this earlier. But um, uh, tell us more about how you studied membrane remodeling in your computer simulations. As I mentioned, the membrane remodeling is basically you, uh, you know, changing the shape of the membrane from a perfectly symmetric flat uh, structure to a curved uh, structure. And uh, this, is, this is common in the cell. There are tubular uh, membranes, there are vesicles that are more spherical, and there are many different uh, configurations or shape uh, of the membrane uh, in the cell. And these are important for a variety of uh, functions, for uh, trafficking uh, and, and so forth. So what we wanted to do here is to see if this kind of aggregation of protein on the membrane surface would alter or affect it is otherwise flat shape. And that's, that's re really what we meant by membrane remodeling. And the way to, to study it is always, obviously, uh, you know, we can visualize it. We can see uh, that it's not, it's not flat, but also we can calculate uh, some, uh, some physical properties of the membrane. Uh, curvature uh, would be one, the stress uh, on the membrane caused by this protein is the other, uh, and other elastic properties can be measured and characterized, and we calculated some of those in this paper uh, to, to quantify the extent to which uh, binding of asymmetric binding of these RAS proteins altered the uh, shape of the membrane. You've been talking about these molecular dynamics simulations. Tell us more about um, these simulations. Uh, further in your paper, you, you looked at the, st the stress going on in the cell membrane under the influence of these um, uh, human rat sarcoma proteins. Um, what did you find in these stress simulations, and how did you do it? The simulations themselves are uh, more or less uh, standard, right? The, the, the key difference, as I mentioned earlier, is that we have to resort to uh, approximation sparse grain model so that we can uh, study larger systems. This is pretty large for, you know, if you, if you try to simulate it in full atomic detail. Uh, uh, other than that, uh, I can, you know, just mention that we use the GROMAX uh, program and the Martini coarse grain so, uh, force field. So uh, that those, uh, the force field has been really successful in studying uh, membranes, especially in domain organization and large scale reorganization of membranes uh, by uh, the original developers and a number of other people. So we used that. Uh, the new thing here is we uh, uh, added this protein I mentioned, the RAS sarcoma protein or RAS proteins uh, on the membrane. And also we wanted to see uh, coupling between self-aggregation of proteins and membrane uh, structural changes and uh, mechanical property changes. So those, those are... Uh, uh, our focus. And the calculations uh, themselves, um, uh, as I mentioned, we have done this before, uh, you know, a number of times. 
So there is really not particularly new about you know the setup of the simulation. The analysis, however, utilized uh, some uh, some new developments from other labs for you know to calculate uh, three-dimensional stress fields on the membrane. Uh, in our case, uh, due to the impact of the uh, of the protein, and we have also looked at. Uh, the surface tension uh, that can be derived from the uh, pressure fluctuations, uh, and also we looked at the density of uh, of the lipids on uh, each side of the uh, the leaflet. There are by it's a bilayer, so there are two layers, and those uh, would tell us uh, again uh, a lot about the structure uh, and also elastic properties of the membrane. So those are uh, some of the new things that that we highlight in this paper. Uh, you mentioned that the Gromax um, simulation program used um, in this study, um, and um, I'm hoping that you could talk a little bit about some of the some of the nuts and bolts of the algorithms uh, that went into these computer simulations, um, where you you basically you 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 took a grid, a very small grid of just 40 nanometers by more or less by 40, um, that uh, I guess our listeners can think of as about half the size of a single virus particle. Yeah, that's, that's, that's about right. Um, so in, in general, uh, uh, I can answer this in more broader terms. Uh, the way these uh, molecular dynamic simulations work is you build, uh, um, let's say, a cube. It can be any other shape. You know, it's a small unit cell. Put there everything you need uh, in your system. In our case, we have the uh, lipids, we have the protein, we have uh, ions to maintain a certain ionic strength, and uh, water and so forth. So the idea is that you capture the basic features uh, of what you would have in a test tube. So the, the grid, as you mentioned, or the, 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 the box would have to be reasonably small. You know, I mean, this is pretty large uh, because we are using, as I said, coarse-grain models, but for atomistic models, typically it's much smaller than this. Once you, you assemble all of, all of these things, there is uh, something called the uh, force field or potential energy function that has been developed over uh, the last uh, 40 years or so. And, uh, you know, Nobel Prize has been given uh, last year uh, on basically these things, and my previous advisor, uh, Dr. Andy Makamon, was one of the first, the first actually, to, to, to run uh, proteins uh, using this kind of uh, approach. So Gromax or all the other tools we use, NAMD for atomistic simulations, they use the same uh, basic approach. They have this force field that would uh, basically describe uh, how particles move and communicate, interact with, with, with each other. Uh, how, how particles should behave, and then apply uh, Newton's equations to to move them, uh, to step them through time. So, so that's uh, again in a nutshell. That's the basics uh, of of the simulation method we use. So these are uh, these have been around for quite some time and uh, well developed, and in my view, really uh, mature now to to try to ask uh, complicated questions such as uh, the one we have been talking about. And ultimately, this um, looking at such a small piece of nature um, uh, 
can tell us a lot about um, something that uh, that many people are, you know, around the world are interested in, um, uh, cancer. Um, how does this research relate to understanding, treating, and ultimately uh, curing cancer? Yeah, uh, just a little bit on the, on the previous one. Uh, I mean, even if the central unit cell, the one we were talking about, was small, we use something called the periodic boundary condition. So it's, it's kind of... Uh, uh, there is a mathematical approach to try to capture the effect of the surrounding uh, environment. Uh, so we use that in these simulations, and uh, everybody uses that in, uh, in uh, all kinds of simulations. Just, just to highlight that it's, even if the unit cell itself is small, uh, the impact of, of, of the surrounding medium or the size uh, effects can be, uh, can be captured. Uh, uh, there are tools, there are ways to do that. Uh, one is periodic boundary condition, uh, as I mentioned. That's the one we use here. So to go back, uh, you know, how do uh, these kinds of things help us um, um, study major issues uh, like cancer, you said, uh, as you mentioned. Well, uh, uh, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, how uh, we are now back uh, studying grass for as a drug target. So one thing you can, one thing critical, uh, really important that you learn from these simulations and uh, one of the major contributions in my view of molecular dynamic simulations is the information you, we get using this method about the dynamics of biomolecules uh, in general. And uh, in the case of RAS, it's, it's mobile. It's small, but it's very flexible, very dynamic, and we can do uh, we can study the motion of this protein really well using uh, simulation approaches. Uh, so, so the lesson we learn about protein motion is one key feature uh, of simulations. The others uh, that are related to this is uh, the drug design, you know, structure-based, computer-aided drug design that. Uh, can also uh, be nowadays coupled with molecular dynamic simulations to generate, uh, you know, m many, many, many different uh, structures with slightly different conformations or shapes and to try to use those to dock uh, small molecules onto, onto them, you know, an ensemble of those structures in a virtual screening uh, setting. So all these uh, are the benefits of, of doing simulations uh, using these seemingly small uh, boxes uh, of water and the protein. And there are many, many other uh, lessons that we can learn uh, from simulations. And of course, if we develop inhibitors, you know, starting from this, uh, this kind of studies uh, that would work, uh, that that would help treat uh, cancer, then uh, that would be wonderful. And that's what we aspire to do and many others aspire to do. And uh, we have some successes in, in uh, some of our initial studies uh, in that regard. Uh, again, the other thing we can learn, as I mentioned earlier, was is something, you know, basic but fundamental, is the biophysics of membrane. Uh, you know, what happens to the shape of the membrane when you have uh, proteins or, or, or other uh, biomolecules bound to it, either on one side or across the membrane. Uh, all those uh, those kinds of things, and we learned really details and 
a lot of uh, uh, predictions have been made, experimentally testable predictions can be made. All these things uh, can be done using simulations. You've been listening to Alex Gorfa of the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston Medical School. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.